Content warning. This episode contains a mention of child molestation. It's nothing explicit, but it is mentioned, so it's worth pointing out up front. But that's kind of like my Christian resume in a nutshell. And I look at that and I think about it and I'm just like, <laughs> like I just feel like I, it, it, it truly does feel like a whole lifetime ago. And that's very strange to me. It really feels like that was a different person than I currently am today. This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual de- and reconstruction. Season 3, Episode 13, Verse. Hello, it's Kevin, and on behalf of the Airing of Grief team, welcome to something we've never done before. When this episode is over, the conversation it contains will only be just beginning. I hope everyone's caught up. Season 3 has truly become what we'd hoped in shifting the focus in the way we did. While Season 2 circled issues of embodiment more times than we could count, the central theme of Season 3 has taken the shape of process as we've explored the evolution into newfound hope and peace on the other side of a particular expression of faith or belief. And really, the last two episodes would make a great season three finale in their own right. They both spoke to the main macro issues of the human stories we feature on this podcast, in psychology and in science. They focused on the realities of process and all its complexity, and if you missed those, I especially recommend going back to hear them. But what you're about to hear over the next episodes is more experimental. We want to cover all the ground the podcast has ever covered, but at greater scale and scope than ever before. As anyone who's listened to even one episode of The Airing of Grief knows, music has always been a central part of our podcast. Our producer Derek's music underscoring all three seasons and debuting two brand new albums in the process. And so maybe it's not surprising that in curating these conversations and assembling the episodes week by week, and running dialogue and music in parallel so many times, the conversations themselves start to sound like music in their own way. They tend to feature this flow that resembles the components of a song. They start to remind me of verses and choruses repeating over and over again. And the more you listen to these stories, the more you can't help but see their intersections, where they share space and where they diverge. We began experimenting in early season two with weaving conversations together more fluidly when the content seemed to want to go in that direction, but nothing we've ever released has ever been at this scale. And that said, to carry it out at this scale is a lot harder than it ultimately sounds. Trying to keep clear on this many conversations and which parts might fit where had me nearly giving up multiple times. It was overwhelming trying to be intimately familiar with this many conversations at once, 
But after completing the main body of season three, there were a ton of new calls taken, a ton more conversations to listen back through and curate. And as our editor, I honestly needed a mental health break at some point in that process. But I think the end result flows and feels more cohesive than what it took to get there. Or at least I hope so. The idea is to expand to a larger dialogue than ever before, to extend that choir, that cloud of witnesses, not only in size, but in scope. Stories told over more than a single episode, with different people having more or less to say at different points along the path. We'll trace the stories of people from their origins, to their complications, to their breakdowns and their fallouts, to the process they went through in becoming someone new. It's part of how things evolve, but experimentation is strange. I've even wondered if it's possible that this first part in the miniseries will be the least interesting, or maybe the least fulfilling. I don't know, but by the end, it's a lot of stories to pause, and a pretty huge to be continued. And so, to highlight all the space we've held in the history of this podcast, this first part is the one dealing with our points of origin. It's not about where we are now, or even how things crumbled to get us there. It's about where we came from and how that shaped everything. Let's get into it. Yes, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. Great. Great connecting with you, man. Yeah, you too. So, okay, where do I even start? Uh... <laughs> it's really funny. My my husband was reassuring me tonight before I did this. You know, you were you were called to this for a reason, and it's funny that he used that term because I don't necessarily agree with it in the greater spiritual connotation anymore. My deconstruction story. Um, I feel like it's similar to a lot of a lot of deconstruction stories in general. Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about listening the last couple of seasons, especially, but even this season, um, has been uh, hearing other people's stories that are pretty similar and not feeling quite so alone in my own walk. Um, it's been really comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this season, getting to hear where people have come from and after what they've been through has been really encouraging. Mm. And when I first submitted, I was in a much different place, um, still dealing with a lot of anxiety and anger with church and things. And uh, I've, I feel like I'm actually in a much better place now. So I'm glad that I didn't get contacted until season three because uh, <laughs> hopefully I can help someone else feel less alone when they hear whatever it is I've got to put out there. If you were here, you'd see my four pages of notes of me frantically trying to put together the big themes of my life <laughs> for this phone call. I think you mentioned kind of simultaneously everything being up in the air and ending, you said, an abusive <laughs> relationship, a non-redeeming faith, and moving across an ocean kind of all at the same time in effort to rebuild a life. Right. <laughs> Yeah, um, thanks for thanks for this opportunity. Like, it's very rare that I get to share my story or I get asked to share my story. So mm. this is great. The thing that stuck out the most to me was was kind of this culmination in what you had written that said, "I don't really know what I believe anymore, but I really love who I'm becoming." 
it's good to hear that I still believe that about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I I still think that and I still am thoroughly enjoying this journey. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a really, I've had plenty of people in the journey for the last couple of years tell me that they're worried about me. And I've been like, why? I Mm. am loving this. This is really fun. (laughs) I, I came out, my family disowned me. I used to be a Christian. The church dropped me. Yes, that sucks, but that that happened and that's the past. The real story right now for me is how I found community within the gay community. I found a new family that wasn't my blood family. Mm -hmm. It's the opening statement actually of your submission. You say, I lost my faith both over time and in a moment, which just struck me as incredibly true to a lot of people's experience, sort of that moment giving clarity to what had been a process you didn't necessarily fully reckon with being in. I guess let's rewind and start wherever you'd like to start and kind of bring us up to speed with what happened. Apparently I change a lot, so I'm Mm. okay with that. And I think that that's never been, I shouldn't say never, but I, I would say that that's something that has not been part of the culture that I've been a part of for a long time. Change is not okay. You have to stay in your lane. You have Mm -hmm. to pick a lane and stay in it. That was one of those that was at church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, I grew up Pentecostal. So like running the aisles and... Mm. I grew up Southern Baptist, so we thought y'all were crazy. Yeah, I went to a Southern Baptist Christian school and Mm. I got in, you know, this was like when I was, I was in like fifth grade, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I just remember getting in like arguments with my teachers about how the Pentecostals were right and the Baptists were wrong. Oh, I respect it. So it's sort of a long journey from there. Um, You know, when I was, I guess, a little bit older, my parents decided that we were going to stop going to Pentecostal churches and we were going to sort of do the non-denom thing and we found ourselves at a friend's church and then we ended up at an Andy Stanley church. Like a lot of people I grew up going to uh, to church, um, sort of a mix of like Lutheran and evangelical traditions. And it was, a, it was a really conservative church. It was a very fundamentalist church, King James version of the Bible only. We had one gentleman who would pray in the King James prayer for probably 10 minutes every Sunday morning. I was involved in like a um, an evangelical church, which you very well know. Um, and uh, yeah, full disclosure, and we family. come from the, the same place. For I, if this ends up as part of what I need to air, we come from the same place in the same church. Yeah, we do. We we grew up together, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that it was great, and I loved it, and I loved my church family. I loved my friends. I loved all of it. It was it was super great. So when I did come out and. The church advised my parents to no longer talk to me, and so they didn't. They didn't talk to me. I was done. They cut me off. They called me names. I was done. The quick recap is, you know, I was born in Bogota, in Colombia, mm-hmm. and I was raised there until 2015 when I moved to Boston to start my PhD. Mm-hmm. You know, you're born in, you're born in South America. You were almost born in a Catholic family by default. Right. And so my family was. I I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I was very sheltered. I was very, uh, it was just like this bubble. And there was nothing in my life that was outside of that bubble. Like, I literally 
thought in my six-year-old or seven-year-old mind that there was good Adventist Christian people and then the rest of the world was like evil atheist or like whatever and like in my mind that was just that was what I was being fed so that's what I thought Mm -hmm. and for a long time that was my reality my sister came with this new ideas of how things were supposed to be and you know one by one my other sister my mom started converting to those ideas so to speak and and was just drawn into that for a while and um, and what were those ideas uh you know basically evangelical uh mostly evangelical ideas yeah so I, i don't want to just clump everything into one thing but right but generally yeah yeah uh I mean, some things were so extreme as to say, you know, you're not allowed to listen to music that is not Christian. Yes. You're not allowed to have a beer. You're not allowed to do so many things. Yeah, it sounds like more kind of classic fundamentalism. Exactly. I grew up Church of Christ, which is one of those pretty conservative denominations that likes to say it's not a denomination, you know, it's the church that Jesus established. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, after listening, I've actually heard a lot of similarities, I feel like, between between us, using the term loosely, I'm not attending anymore, um, and, you know, more evangelical uh, labeled congregations mm-hmm. as far as certain practices and beliefs. And um, one of the big ones that has really resonated with me over the years is a pretty consistent inability to handle stress and trauma within the church in a healthy fashion for the people involved. You know, kind of grew up in very conservative evangelical home, was a a pastor's kid, even a a missionary kid briefly. Uh, A pretty predominant Church of Christ in Durham, North Carolina, which is where Duke is. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very diverse congregation, lots of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, lots of different socioeconomic backgrounds. But because Duke was there, we also had the doctors and lawyers and uh, the students who were at the Divinity School. So growing Mm -hmm. up, I heard a lot of really intellectual, high church type sermons, uh, Mm -hmm. especially compared to a lot of what I hear in churches these days. And that was that was kind of my childhood, you know, small town, conservative upbringing. I always tell people like a lot of people do. I was born in a pew. in an evangelical free church, which I always thought was funny because the free really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Very evangelical, yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up in an evangelical church. I quote-unquote prayed the prayer when I was three uh, because I, you know, had had a very hard life of sin up until that point and mm. had a lot to be <laughs> saved from. Right.
stuff. I did all the youth rallies. I did Winterfest. I did Bible camp for a couple of weeks every summer. And then I was in Awana from ages three until 12. A couple of mission trips to Honduras. And I was on youth leadership, drama teams. I, when my parents had Dr. Dobson on the radio, we'd listen to that. And because of that, you know, we got to go through the 90s and early 2000s purity teachings, you know, where mm-hmm. you'll be at a youth rally and they're passing around the roses and everyone's supposed to rub on it and take a petal and all this. And then at the end, you know, now who wants this used rose? Who wants this second and third and hundredth hand rose? And so all of that really unhealthy, toxic perspective on why anyone should remain chaste until marriage. And uh, that that informed a lot more of, of my he going forward than I thought at the time. I was given a true of weight promise ring. I went to apologetic classes, did street evangelism, prayer meetings. Me and a bunch of friends created prayer and Christian clubs on our middle school and high school campuses. Uh, we were very busy then. I evangelized to my friends at school and when I was like, where do I, where should I go to college? I decided I obviously need to go to the local Mennonite Brethren College and then I later attended the seminary the grad school program. Mm. My senior year, I was the only girl in the youth group, but I was the most active leader in the youth group. I mean, looking back now, I just think how sad it is that I grew up in a lot of, so many of us grew up in an environment where uh, our inability to use our gifts was a joke. Like mm-hmm. we literally joked about it. Like, oh, we know that they're doing it, but not really because they have a vagina, you know. I went through a lot of changes. I had doubts early on, but I suppressed them. And it kind of came to a head when I was in college. I went to college for theology. And as I was studying I was learning things, you know, I was learning like the origins of the denomination and then criticisms. And so like now, instead of being fed all the good things, I'm seeing both sides of, you know, what I supposedly believe and have never, never even had the thought to question. Got married quite young and I would say, you know, looking back on it, really ignored a lot of warning signs when it came to that relationship Mm -hmm. uh, because I thought that was what I was supposed to do, you know, in terms of (laughs) I had firmly kissed dating goodbye and this was just (laughs) the, of course, had to go, had to go directly into, into marriage from any kind of romantic relationship. Exactly. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling feelings. This this must mean that I have to marry this person. Well, women don't need to have the titles or to be up front because we all know that they're the ones really keeping things running. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just so belittling and demeaning. Mm -hmm. So all that led into um, me going to a Christian college, uh, well, a Church of Christ college specifically, a very conservative one. And um, having been pretty naive about a lot of things growing up, I dove headfirst into this incredibly serious relationship at a very Church of Christ college where everyone dives into relationships way too early and gets married way too early and gets divorced earlier than their parents did probably. Mm. Um, 
but it was uh, it was a really manipulative and an emotionally abusive relationship. But having grown up an only child to an awesome dad, but with five younger sisters, so kind of protective and growing up in the Church of Christ world, I thought, you know, this is just who he is and we love each other. So I will just kind of roll with it and make it work. And uh, it was all a big train wreck, of course. But I, I walked away from that relationship with a lot of guilt because of things that I had engaged in physically that I had never done before. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I mean, just the guilt I was carrying and how, you know, if that was affecting me wanting him. How was that going to affect me going forward? You know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> would anyone want to be with me since I had done all these things with somebody else first? You know, would they have the same reaction to me? And uh, But out of all that, some good came because I had another panic attack one night when we were on a date, when we were not long after we had gotten engaged. And we had gone to a movie with uh, with a really graphic rape and abuse scene. And I just completely froze up and could not talk for a couple of hours, you know, driving back from Little Rock. And I was just dead quiet. And he finally pried it out of me. This thing that I had not ever told anyone was uh, that when I was eight, nine-ish years old, uh, I was being molested by an elder at my church. Mm. And so I guess seeing that graphic of a, of a physical violence scene for the first time uh, just brought back something that, that I had not ever really dealt with. And uh, consequently, when he broke up with me, he said, you know, if you, because I, I had told him I didn't need counseling and I was fine. And then he, he came to me and said, if you don't go to counseling and you don't deal with this, you're not ever going to have a functional relationship with anybody. common theme that runs through a lot of these kind of stories is we, uh, a lot of us, myself included, were part of a sort of a faith community going to church and had a lot of significant relationships, friendships, mentors, people that were in our lives. And uh, at some point, one or more of those people turned out to not be who we thought they were, I guess. Mm -hmm. I've always kind of thought of myself as somebody who wants to know the truth and Wherever the truth is to be found, I didn't want my emotions to get in the way of that. And so what I mean by that is, like, when I was a Christian, um, you know, a lot of people had issues with the idea of hell or being a sinner, things like that. And for me, I didn't want whether or not that was the case to be influenced by how I felt about it. Like, you know, people Mm -hmm. say, I don't like the idea of hell, so I'm... I don't believe in it. And for me, it was always this, well, even if I didn't like it, is it true? Is it there? Totally. So my husband is very scientifically minded. And when we started dating, he was not a Christian and had no really background, but had always been curious about it. And I was, but we always had very open talks. 
And he kind of explored Christianity in being with me and still held on to his scientific beliefs very firmly. So I eventually got to the point that I really felt I needed to explore that to understand his point of view. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't scared of it because I thought truth is truth. So whatever's the case with evolution, you know, these things that are debated in a lot of Christian communities, if God is true, God is true. If evolution is true, evolution is true. And I was willing to explore that. For me, I grew up in church. I grew up, I was in church on Sundays. I was in a private school with Bible class, with chapel on Thursdays, with youth group. My eighth grade life science class actually had the six days of creation (laughs) as the explanation of how we got here. And I remember my teacher talking about carbon dating and how absurd it was. And I was never very good at math and science. So I always, I kind of shied away anyway and just didn't go there. So being with my husband challenged me to explore this in a way that it just hadn't happened yet in my life. Mm-hmm. And I started reading all these books, um, The Language of God by Francis Collins, who mapped the human genome, but considers himself some level of a Christian. Um, I just started going down this path. And as I continued reading all these books, trying to reconcile these things, and I should mention that I wasn't a Christian for in high school, but when I came back, I came back in a Calvary that was very literal. And so... <laughs> Um, <laughs> Calvary Chapel is really representing this season. It's funny because I consider it, it such a small movement, you know, but it's oh. ju- it's just funny because it's like my background, nobody ever spoke to it in season one or two, but here we are. And there you're like the third mm. person. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, I can see why I was attracted to it. I really needed the structure coming out of kind of the chaos I'd been in. But then you understand how very literal they take things. I think I figured out at like 10 or 12, around that age, I remember I was at uh, JCPenney shopping with my mom and my Mm -hmm. sister, and I saw these two guys kissing, and I was just like, a bell went off on my head, and I'm like, holy crap, that can happen. Oh my God, this is real. Hmm. And then for me, like like my mom, you know, told me, oh no, those are gay people, they're going to hell, don't look at them. And so then I realized, like, it kind of like awoke me. I'm like, oh my God. I am like that, but I didn't know that that was even a reality, I guess, mm. until I saw those guys at JCPenney. And then um, I prayed like every day for it to go away, mm. like hardcore, like all the time, like, please don't let me be gay. Please don't let me be gay. Please, please, please. I don't want to be. I think I've been given a lot of stories, and I think we're all given a lot of stories where the, the goal of them is kind of to say, hey, you're in. You're in this group. You're part of this group. Here's a story for you to believe in. But I think as those stories unfold, eventually there's another group that is out of the group. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, I think when I'm reflecting on all these stories, whenever I got to a place in the story where another group of people was out, I think in my head, I was like, no, that's not going to work. And so I see myself jumping all into those other stories, kind of seeing myself as a bridge to bring that back to the group that I'm quote unquote a part of mm-hmm. and saying like, Hey, no, they, they're actually involved too. They're actually in the group too. We're all human, you know, and coming back to that theme. Like I didn't date in high school period. I didn't date. 
And I said that I didn't want to date because I wanted to like keep myself pure, focus on the Lord and marching band. So mm-hmm. yeah, and those things band, are really yeah. important. <laughs> yeah, marching band's really important. You can't have your focus um, off of marching band right now. <laughs> exactly. It's I need to time. focus on, <laughs> on that. Yes. And then, uh, but then it, I remember in college, um, I did date one guy and that was kind of like, um, do you know what a beard is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was pretty much my beard. And I think I was his beard as well. It was it was that type of a situation, like mm. like best friends, that kind of a thing. I wasn't a son of a pastor, but I was a son of a choir director. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so I think I saw that, you know, in a, in a healthy way, patterned by my dad inviting anybody into the choir. You didn't have to sing. You didn't have to be young and old or good looking or, you know, and I just watched that growing up. Anyone was welcome to be part of the choir. And the reason why I was living a lie is because I didn't want to go to hell. I was terrified. I didn't, I didn't want to burn forever in hell. So I kept, you know, repressing it and pushing it down and ignoring it and thinking it didn't exist and uh, praying it away and praying it away. I even tried to like date a Christian guy. Like, like there was a couple that like I tried to date because I was like, oh, Christian guys, they're gonna like not want to ever have sex. So like, mm. that'll work. And it didn't, so <laughs> it didn't work. But I, I, I tried, you know. I gave it a good, a good, honest effort of being mm-hmm. a good heterosexual, but it just didn't work, you know. It wasn't working out. Yeah, I've just I've found myself in this position of reflecting on the stories I've been given, and then when it's when it's time for that story to exclude somebody, I I, I try to rewrite it, I guess. But that's kind of like my Christian resume in a nutshell. And I look at that and I think it, about it and I'm just like, <laughs> like I just feel like I, it, it, it truly does feel like a whole lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. And that's very strange to me. Yeah. It really feels like that was a different person mm. than I currently am today. I think while I may not now agree with a lot of what was taught at those churches and I don't actually go to church anymore but Mm -hmm. I do appreciate how they affected me getting to where I am today I am a big proponent of trying to look back on my life and say like that was a big part of me getting where I am instead of being like damn I wish I wouldn't have done that you know what I mean Yeah. Um, I think that outlook is kind of lent itself to me ending up with this perspective and and you know hanging out with people that were encouraging me to challenge the beliefs that I I had growing up and the things that I was taught yeah you know I always heard growing up my parents would always say like you're not gonna get into heaven on like your parents coat sleeves or whatever the saying is and thinking like okay that's cool and all and I I get that and I want to form my own opinions but I never actually did that Um, You know, it was like, I'm going to say that I'm forming my own opinions by... But it's in such a controlled environment, you can't really form real, you know, opinions that are all of your own. Because they still have to kind of match up. As much as your parents will tell you, you know, you can't get in on our coattails. They also, our parents had this very specific mandate to like raise up your child in the way that you decide that they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. And so there's this weird kind of double bind even for our parents with that. 
Exactly. It's interesting. Um, you know, and my dad tells me all the time, like, I don't really care, like, what you what you think politically or what you do to make money or like really to a certain I guess not really like what you believe but like as long as you believe in Jesus then like I'm mm. good I don't feel like I've failed as a dad which is like that's still a lot of pressure to yeah, put on something it's just been a kind of an interesting process and I really enjoyed coming out of that I guess because I really felt like I drank the Kool-Aid like I look back and I'm like that was my life. Like I slept, ate, breathed, drank every, like everything was church. Mm-hmm. And I think I dissociated, I, I learned to maybe dissociate from the parts that I didn't like because I really did like it. Like there were parts that I really enjoyed, like the community aspect. And like, I had a lot of really good friends at church, I'm still friends with a lot of them today. But I realized that I, there was just this like part of me that was like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe this isn't everything. I don't know. There's just, I think I've always maybe been a skeptic and I just kind of suppressed that part mm-hmm. of me. And I, I think it's interesting how you phrase that, that you, you potentially dissociated from the stuff you didn't like. Uh, I think I did the yeah. same thing. I think that whatever deep down I found appalling or abhorrent about theology or church or anything like that I think that I didn't really associate myself with that because that was that of those other people and as a result that kept me from really questioning it for a time you know that that sort of was like you know where I didn't feel implicated by the things that perhaps I should have felt implicated to challenge like it just let me exist in the part of church that I found fun and beautiful because I think I think there's an underlying fear there sometimes that we can't find that same stuff outside of the structure um, <laughs> if there's anything that's been hard for me to realize it's actually been that it's been that because I associated everything that was wonderful with that structure that if I find myself outside right. of the structure if I find that construct faulty if I no longer see truth in it, then I feel like I no longer belong to those things or those things that I find beautiful no longer belong to me. And that's, that's something, I mean, even this over this past year and, and I began deconstructing 15 years ago, but even over this past year, I think that was one of the main things that I've been learning to articulate, which is just, that's like, if I find I don't believe in something anymore, then that doesn't mean anything has changed other than my awareness of what I think, (laughs) you know? And so, so I, I haven't changed. All that means is that those things belong to me more now, you know, if anything. Yeah. I love, that's a perfect way to say that. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I've been told that I, I kind of see things mosaically Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I can see and kind of give you tiny little pictures. And I'm thinking that you are able to put the pieces together. And that's going to be our To Be Continued for this week. Join us next time for the continuation episode, which will be called Chorus. All of these calls will ultimately be at our Patreon, filtering out over the coming weeks and months, one at a time, in full, so patrons will have access to each in its own space and time for the more traditional experience of these conversations. 
You can join the conversation of the season finale and let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. As always, theairingbrief.com has all episodes and supplemental content, so you can check that out too. Our producers have websites at DerekWebb.com and JamieLeeFinch.com, and you can find more from them there as well. I'll leave it there for this week. So as always, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time after church for the airing of grief. <laughs>